So there was a conversation in our Matrix channel about what our podcasting audio setup is. And of course, you have a full studio with a professional soundboard. And I am over here on kind of a rinky-dink audio interface. Well, a beginner setup. I mean, it's a reasonable beginner setup. And I kind of had the idea from you to upgrade and get a, a cool soundboard. And the discussion in the chat kind of inspired me. And, you know, I mentioned it to my wife and I was like, oh, yeah, it's pretty expensive. And she was like, go for it. Yeah. You know, you podcast all the time. It'll be great. So I was very excited and I, I found uh, the thing I wanted. It was on a music sort of gear website. Well-known, well-established, well very popular in the industry. Yeah. And they had a, uh, like a demo model that was, you know, 70 bucks off, but with the same warranty. And I was like, hey, I'll do that. Well, 6 a.m. this morning, I get a phone call and it is one of their sales engineers, quotation marks, and there's a problem with my order. And it turns out that because I don't, you know, give my credit card to random websites on the internet. I go to privacy.com, which is a unaffiliated service, but they'll basically give you disposable credit card numbers and then they kind of steal the points and that's how they pay themselves. And they kind of mask your financial activity from everyone you do business with. So I think it's a great service. But, you know, because this transaction was over $700, it was kind of a big transaction and the credit card details and the shipping address didn't match. It triggered all of their fraud alerts. And I've had two calls with this person. And on the last call, you know, after I gave them, you know, I, I was like, okay, fine. Can't use a private credit card. Here's my straight up actual credit card. You know, all my personal information, just give me the, the thing I want. And, uh, and they still couldn't do it. There was like, they were like, you know, can, can you, can we talk about, have you changed your address? Like any other addresses you've lived at in the past couple of years? And I'm just like, I'm sorry, you need to KYC my whole life just so I can buy a product from you? Pass, you know, I, I don't want it that much. Sorry, let's not do business. And we're not talking like $10,000 here, right? We're not even talking over $1,000. It's just crazy how hard it's getting to spend money. Just spend a little bit of cash. It's Everything gets flagged as possible fraud. Or uh, I was recalling a story of a friend who tried to just to write a check to themselves because they were moving money between accounts and they said no to a wire. So he wrote the check and then he got the total inquisition as to why he was used, why he needed this cash, why he was writing this check, what he's going to use this money for, where it came from, if he's trying to float money between accounts. And he's like, I've been doing this for years. And then just one, one time they decided to like hold the funds and give me the inquisition as to what I was doing with the money. Right. It, it, it's really a terrible experience. And I, I, I get this as well. When I withdraw cash from the bank, they always ask me what it's for. And it's very hard for me to give a civil reply because I just view that as a real attack on my financial privacy because, you know, I know that legally money in the bank belongs to the bank and then I have a claim on it, but emotionally it feels like my money and I feel like I have the right to use it without anyone's permission, but that's actually not the case. We do need permission to use credit cards and dollars in a bank account or whatever your local currency is. It's like they want it to become more enticing to go outside the system as they kind of ratchet this down and dial up the surveillance. Every time I go through one of these experiences, I think, God, just be so much easier with Bitcoin. And more people will start thinking that way. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on May 12th, 2023. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm recording, as always, with... Hey, it's me. It's Chris. Welcome back, everybody. 
Today's show is going to be a little shorter than usual. We've recorded some extra episodes, so forgive us. We're going to discuss how Bitcoin held on exchanges is hitting five-year lows. It's kind of interesting in the midst of sort of a volatile market. The Bitcoin liquidity is getting thinner. It turns out that PayPal is a Bitcoin whale with nearly $500 million of Bitcoin in custody. And then we're going to dive deep into Bitcoin Optech with a paper about proof-of-work swap, a way for miners to insure themselves against changes in hash rate. And there's also an interesting discussion from friend of the show, Adam Gibson, aka Waxwing, that discusses signature adapters that are a very important cryptographic technology that enables quite a few Bitcoin features under the hood and how there are vulnerabilities in the way that cryptographers have been modeling their security. And then we have some feedback and boosts. That's our show. Some great boosts this week. But let's talk about this Bitcoin supply story. I mean, what a great, happy story to start the show with. Some good news. I'm so proud of Bitcoiners right now. We are at a five-year historic low for supply of Bitcoin on the exchanges. It is suddenly around 5.84%. We haven't seen these lows since 2017. And what that means is that Bitcoiners are holding in their own self-custody solutions. They're not keeping their coins on the exchanges. The repeated meme of not your keys, not your coins seems to have really set in. And I'm really, really impressed. It it means roughly 1.1 million Bitcoin is left in custodial services and approximately uh, 2 million Bitcoin is still in exchange wallets. And I find it kind of compelling that we've seen this response to the down market is that Bitcoiners are getting their stuff off those exchanges. Well, let me hit you with a alternative take. Maybe Bitcoin adoption is falling and people are selling out and therefore exchange balances are falling. Does that make sense? Could that be an explanation? Well, the the other metric they're looking at is the age of coins and wallets as well. Uh, so I think that's a factor here. But I, I wonder, because I think as people kind of start to accept that recession is setting in, I think the price, all asset prices will go down. It's all going to be correlated. Everything's going to go down and Bitcoin included. So people may be at this point in time trying to get ahead of that. Either way, it means there's low inventory on the exchanges for sale, right? Uh, a five-year low. Plus, you combine that with a historically high hash rate that we have right now, because a lot of these miners that capitulated and sold their equipment, that sold equipment has been coming online. And you have the halvening in spring of 2024. So you have five-year low supply, high hash rate. You have an extremely high conviction rate for the long-term hodlers that we talked about in the previous episode. And then you got the halvening, which is going to make the rewards half the size. I mean, that just is, I think, setting up for some really interesting conditions over the next year. It's going to be, like, I think, kind of a unique time in Bitcoin history. I think you're feeling bullish. I'm hearing a bull feeling. Well, I mean, long-term, I'm bullish. I'm actually more bullish short-term in just sort of the, I think I'm going to be able to increase my stash a little bit just by modestly picking up some some sats as the price slides way down. I expect it, to, I've been expecting it to slide down since, you know, I expected the recession at the beginning of the year. But I think, you know, we're it's at 26,000 each week that we've been recording. It's been down like another thousand. So we're seeing this very slow decline from 30,000. And then, you know, you combine the fact that everybody's feeling really tight 
They don't have a lot of money to go spend, and they're certainly not going to go spend it right now on on silly crypto or something, except for the most convicted, which is people listening to this show. And so I think it's just setting up for low price for a little while, you know, for the next year or so. I don't know. I really, I'm no good at that. But long term, if the hash rate remains high and the volume remains low on the exchanges, when the happening occurs, which is going to happen, it happens like a clock. Yeah, it's sort of got to go up because because there's just not a lot of Bitcoin to sell. Yeah. If I mean, you're, you've got the sort of pumponomics of an illiquid market. And it's just another year for tooling to be built, for the Lightning Network to get built out, for things to get discovered on you know the chain, and then also for the companies in the ecosystem around that to, to get ready, for the community and the events. So it's, in a way, it's sort of a, a, a gift to Bitcoiners if you zoom out long term. We may look back at 20, the end of 2023 and 2024 as sort of a special generational time for getting access to Bitcoin when we look, we'll look back at these prices that we're going to, we're heading into and think, man, if only I'd bought a little bit more, no matter how much you get, because it's, we may never see these prices again if the economy recovers, if, you know, Bitcoin adoption remains strong, if, 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 right. But it's, it could be, it could be setting up for a really great year for the, for those that have conviction. Um, and then by the time spring hits, you got to imagine things are going to be turning around for Bitcoin. Who knows though? Who knows? I have an alternative bullish story for Bitcoin. Oh, I was telling you, I was watching the frontline documentary about the Federal Reserve's policy over the past 10 years. Definitely a must watch if you're a nerd about monetary policy. It's not particularly deep, but you do have like Kashkari, the Minneapolis governor, freaking eyeballing the camera. I mean, he really is a very expressive talker. And he actually articulates the only palatable explanation for Fed policy, which is that inflating asset prices isn't so bad because the poor are so poor that their only asset is their job. So even if we make the rich multiples richer, the poor, as long as they don't get fired, we've helped them because we've stimulated wages. And that's just not true because real wages have been flat to negative since 1972. So sorry, maybe you don't need to watch that documentary. (laughs) Right. Especially when you consider inflation, right? Wages are really have not kept up with inflation, real true inflation for the things that we pay for every day, like energy and food and housing and services. Like every utility I have is up and I pay that on a monthly basis and I buy food all the time, unfortunately. But there is a really good observation in this documentary, which is the Federal Reserve, their policy over the past 10 years became the sort of driver of U.S. economic policy. And why did that happen? It was because the U.S. government was dysfunctional. And so because the U.S. government became dysfunctional, the Fed, which is a non-democratic institution, it didn't need to deal with the dysfunction of a society that can't agree on a social contract. And it just went and did something. It kind of stepped into the power vacuum. And it didn't necessarily want to, but there was a vacuum. Something had to fill it. It turned out to be the Fed. Well, the U.S. government is still dysfunctional. And the U.S. government is, in my opinion, there are good odds that it might default on government debt payments at the end of this month, because a partial default could be a very effective short-term negotiating tactic for congressional Republicans who want a spending bill that is at odds with the Biden administration's agenda. So in that environment, suddenly Bitcoin is worth 
a huge amount, in my opinion, because if the U.S. government is politically dysfunctional, then U.S. government debt cannot be the safe asset in the global financial system. You need a different asset with different liabilities. And other than physical gold in your own personal vault or Bitcoin in your own personal wallet, there aren't really financial assets that protect you from monetary policy and custody risk. So I could imagine a situation where there's a big financial panic and stocks and bonds drop like a rock and potentially Bitcoin is not correlated with that because of these properties of no custody risk, no risk to monetary policy. I would disagree, except every time we saw news of a bank collapse in the States, Bitcoin went up in price. So that does have me thinking there's something to what you're saying. I am very skeptical that we'll default. And if we do, didn't we do that once during the Obama administration? And then there's like this process during the default where then they have like an additional set of extraordinary measures when in that condition they can pay a few things. Yeah, they can always. So it's like quasi default. Yeah, delay it slightly. Yeah. No, I mean, I don't think it's going to be like a huge end of the world financial crisis. But it does have to hurt the credibility of the federal government's ability to govern. The credibility of institutions is just plummeting like a stone in this country. It turns out that the U.S. Supreme Court, it's a pretty standard operating procedure to bribe justices. Now, that's not a good look. There was that uh, those talking points that were revealed this week where some Democratic, maybe senators, they, they had a list of talking points that sort of got uh, leaked somewhere. And it was all about how, you know, there's this massive tax loophole that all these crypto people are exploiting. And there is no tax loophole, you know, crypto and Bitcoin is taxed like property in the U.S. And so there are very large taxes to be paid whenever you sell this asset. No kidding. That stinks because, boy, do we pay taxes. There's also a senator that said these crypto bros give the U.S. a hard time for creating money out of thin air, but that's just what they've been doing. And at least we're the U.S. government. <laughs> Basically admitting, yeah, admitting that the money comes from thin air. Yeah, you can trust us to not default. It's pretty hard to trust even like the media and all of this coming up with the presidential elections. It's going to just be a mess. It's going to be the media at their absolute worst yet. And that'll also affect trust in institutions. Long term, though, I I like to see a scenario where a decade or so goes by and after enough pain and hard lessons, politics begins to change in the U.S., And Bitcoin can have a successful future with a prosperous U.S. as well. Now, I'm not saying we're there yet, but 10 years from now, 2033, I could see it starting to change. You'll have an entire different generation of leadership in the halls of power in D.C., an entire different generation. The folks that are in D.C., some of them have been in there for 40 plus years. Look at your buddy, Dianne Feinstein, for example, or Joe Biden. Why are they my buddies? Well, just because you had them over for dinner. You know, once they've been over for dinner, they're officially buddies, <laughs> you know, but no, I mean, I'm, I just think it's going to be we're gonna, we could be in a different position. Perhaps we'll have come in within a decade. Uh, and, you know, with the price of uh, oil continuing to be manipulated by a cabal, maybe we'll come to a consensus that nuclear power can be done safely. And there are technologies that are worth investing in. And we'll even be 
on a course that actually makes it possible for us to own EVs and mine Bitcoin by then. It's going to be a rough road, I suspect. And the decisions being made these last few years, especially since COVID, are making it even rougher. But ultimately, during that painful process, as we continue to make the wrong mistakes, which we will do for a while, I think that just sells Bitcoin itself as Bitcoin runs and does its job. So specifically, you mean the decisions over the past few years? Are you talking about these sort of government incentives to encourage renewable energy and electric vehicles and the problem that these incentives don't quite take into account the need for clean electrical generation that is not intermittent, so essentially nuclear, or what's happening is there's a lot of natural gas being built out to kind of balance out the intermittent power from renewables. I think we've made a lot of sort of greenfield energy policy decisions as if, well, if we fund it, it will come and not really taking into account the market dynamics that actually make these things last long term. I think everything in that regard has been pretty screwed up for the last couple of years. I also think spending since COVID has just been astronomical. It's just been it's been ludicrous. And so that's not helping the inflation situation. And then I don't really see any policies that actually really repaired, encouraged, educated truck drivers, like repair the supply chains. All we're doing to resolve the supply chain issues that we hit is we're causing people to feel poor and stop buying. And we're not actually investing in making the supply chain more robust. So if the economy does come back up, we're going to be constrained by a dysfunctional supply chain again. So we're going to have to go through all of those types of things. Plus, the poor decisions we've made, like you just talked about with energy, are going to have knock-on effects for quite a while as the transition to EVs is going to collapse if nobody can spend 30000 40000 60000 70000 on an EV. So that's going to collapse in its face. So we're going to be stuck with oil for even longer, and we're going to have an aborted attempt to transition to EVs. We're going to be dependent on an energy source that is continuing to be manipulated. That price is going up. We're going to have to change course at some point. I feel like the underlying theme of this last couple of minutes has been that there is dysfunction in the way that policy and political decisions are being made. And I would say that using the American truckers as an example, frankly, I think that there needs to be sort of a new labor movement in the United States that represents workers' rights politically. Because when I worked in supply chain management, what I discovered was that there were all of these dysfunctions because parts of the supply chain were pushing more costs and more responsibilities onto truckers. So truckers only get paid when the truck is in motion. But now they were being asked to operate forklifts and load their trucks. They were also being asked to maintain and repair chassis that shipping containers are put on. That was previously done by either the port or someone else in the supply chain. But then to achieve year-on-year cost downs, they just push that responsibility to truckers. And as a result, I mean, in the decade before COVID, there was just always this chassis shortage that could result in crazy delays and problems moving containers around. And the chassis is just the, uh, it's the wheels and the metal framework that shipping containers sit on when they're being pulled by trucks. And that chassis, you know, it was weird. It was like, who is that? Who is that exactly owned by? And you can't really like say, this is my chassis. This is your chassis because of the way that like, you know, you have to sort of uh, dump them at the port to load the container and stuff. And so they, they all get like mixed together. It's like with pallets, you know, pallets kind of once you build a pallet, it just goes out into the wild and it could end up in anybody's warehouse. There were all of these issues that weren't being resolved because essentially the larger players in the supply chain, the larger companies, they had the kind of you know market power. They had the money to sort of push this onto the truckers. At the end of the day, though, you couldn't make the truckers do a good job because you weren't paying them for it. So it just led to this 
constant issue that, as far as I know, has never been resolved. Yeah, and we've never really done anything to invest in improving the situation. Like, if we're going to spend money on stuff, oh, that would be one area I'd spend money. But we're just not there yet. We're politically not there. But I mean, when you think about it, how do truckers even assert their political power? Because people in the United States, and I imagine in other countries, it's, you know, it's potentially even worse. Everyone is so close to the edge that if truckers, say, had a strike, I mean, you'd have people starving and then they'd blame it on the truckers, you know, but what the truckers are doing right now, it's not sustainable. Yeah. Well, you know, and the problem you're touching on, I think it is really bad with the truckers, but every service shop I go to is looking to hire somebody. The medical field, my neighbor is a nurse and they cannot hire people. They have positions they can't fill. They lost a lot of people during COVID. Some of them got sick and died. Some of them retired. Every single week this year, one of my kids, their bus doesn't have a driver. They just cannot find a bus driver. They don't have any replacements if somebody calls in sick. So once a week, one of us is scrambling to get one of my kids to school because the school district just doesn't have a, f a fully functional bus system anymore. I've, I've never even seen this before. I mean, how hard is it to get somebody to drive a bus, but they can't find anybody to drive a bus? Can I rephrase what you're saying? When they say we cannot hire someone, what I'm hearing is we're offering a compensation that we think is market, but it's not. And therefore, no one can afford to take this job. I mean, this is one place where the Fed and policymakers completely miss what's happening in the labor market because they look at, you know, you want unemployment, which does not include the large proportion of the American working age population that is not participating in the labor force, not because they're lazy and they're smoking pot and playing Xbox at home, which is, you know, kind of an allegation that I hear come up periodically that, you know, workers are just lazy. It's because they cannot afford to work. Another way of saying that is that whatever meager benefits or whatever unpaid work they can do in their household is more valuable than the jobs they are being offered. That means wages need to go up. Am I am I wrong? No, you're so right, especially if if there's kids involved, because daycare is so expensive that I've heard so many people tell me it's just cheaper for one of us to stay home when you consider the driving, the fact that they can help around the house a bit more. It makes life a little smoother. Yeah, we're down a few hundred bucks a month. Maybe maybe we're down a thousand bucks a month total. And that does hurt. But at the same time, my kid's not getting sick all the time. We're not getting sick all the time. And I'm not paying somebody else to raise my kid. I mean, we used daycare. It was useful for us because we were both full-time parents, but it was very expensive and it only worked for us for a couple of years. And before it's like, it just didn't make sense. I think that's a big problem is childcare or, or just the, the commute costs and all of it. Plus, sometimes these jobs are such bullshit, they're not worth it. They're just absolute horrible jobs. So it's, it's and it's everywhere. And the reason I bring this point up is because it might be acute in the trucking industry, but I, I think it's acute in a lot of places. And perhaps collectively, that will force these companies to begin to bargain a bit more. Once they will at some point perhaps have to capitulate, especially if we start to see the economy research right during a recession, they're going to be happy to lay people off and not have, you know, a huge staff. But if the economy resurges at some point, they're going to need those workers and they're going to have to capitulate. And that might be the opportunity for negotiations to start. And I think a lot of people that have been disserviced by this, I, I feel I feel like I have been. Um, it's one of the things that's going to make somebody more inclined to consider adopting something that is not run by the people that run the current system, because the people that run the current system have done a horrible job. And I want something outside of their management. Yeah, I mean, it's like we're describing the difficulties of populist politics, because I think that populism is a label that is often used to discredit a 
non-establishment political movement. And it's true that throughout history, many populist movements have been hijacked by bad actors. That's absolutely true. And I also think that, you know, currently in the United States, there is a strain of populism that marries itself with conspiracy theory and just like absolute insanity on the internet. And I'm thinking of like QAnon people running around Dallas saying that, you know, uh, JFK is going to be resurrected or something. I mean, really weird stuff. You know, at the same time, when I zoom out, I think, okay, well, why are there so many people who are attracted to completely insane stuff on the internet? And I think that it comes from a place of insecurity and desperation, that there is something very insecure, very non-functional in this society, in this economy that makes people susceptible to you know crazy stuff that is often exploitative. And that's smoke. It might not be the fire, but that's the smoke. It's a symptom. Right. And I think that what we're getting at this episode, which is very, it's like a long opinion piece we've got going on here, is that we're sort of in the midst of a, one way of saying it is there has to be a renegotiation of the social contract in the, in the United States and, you know, very likely in other countries. And part of that is because there hasn't been a transfer of power from an older generation to a younger generation, medical technology and uh, technology that has enabled people to sort of work more efficiently means older people can work and therefore older political leaders have stayed in office you know, much longer than they would have in previous generations and they need to go. And also changes in technology have changed the realities of the way people work and sort of what jobs and activities are economically viable. And there kind of has to be an understanding of how that affects work and maybe things like taxation and, you know, other things need to be reexamined. Also, there are these like clear economic problems with policies, both tax and monetary policies that have centralized wealth throughout the world, but especially in the United States. And so, you know, that discussion is very fraught because when you when you talk about wealth distribution, you know, people just lose their minds. You know, you say wealth redistribution in the United States, someone's going to call you a communist. That's going to happen. At the same time, I think that's kind of the unspoken subtext of a lot of these economic policy discussions. So all of this is happening, yet there isn't really an acknowledgement of these pressing issues from the political class. And therefore you get these these populist movements. That's my hot take. And um, I think just to put a little bow on top of that, another way to phrase it is if you're getting a line of bullcrap from the official, whatever it might be, mouthpiece, spokesperson, the media, and then somebody comes along with something that at least has a narrative that strings it together and gives an explanation, you might be inclined to just go with that because at least it makes more sense than perhaps maybe than the crap that that you're getting from officials. And as long as they continue to gaslight the country about economics and things like of that nature, people are going to look for a narrative that seems more accurate. Sometimes they'll pick the wrong one. Sometimes they'll stumble across the right one. Just has to be something that you continue to check with, you know, to make sure that you're not susceptible to it. And I think the nice thing about Bitcoin is it's rules, not rulers. So it's not a group of people that are manipulating a narrative, you know, that people are becoming susceptible to. It's not, there's not a charismatic leader behind Bitcoin that is causing everybody to a call that is for the greater good. It's just a system that runs and people make of it what they will. Yeah, this has really turned into kind of a different format. And I apologize to any non-U.S listeners who are finding our kind of U.S. focused analysis of this to be boring or or irrelevant to their uh, situation. I think that this does tie into Bitcoin very strongly, though, because for me, when I started to get into Bitcoin, I had to look in the mirror 
and ask myself if I was crazy. Because a lot of the concerns and assumptions and values of Bitcoin seem completely contrary to popular narratives that are being shared on you know both sides of the political spectrum in the U.S., but also when I I do like to follow British politics and, and politics in Europe too. And it just seems like the concerns that Bitcoiners have are not discussed in general political discourse. And I would broadly cover the, the sort of things Bitcoin fixes and which I think most Bitcoiners appreciate, which is unpermissioned economic activity. You know, you can't stop a Bitcoin transaction. If someone wants to pay for a transaction, it'll happen. You know, that's the one of the key features of Bitcoin. The other issue is weaponizing the financial system. And so I'm pretty sure whatever country you're in, you can think of someone who has been debanked or had their money seized due to some sort of unjust situation, be it political or, you know, my very mild example of, you know, trying to use a credit card and just the the details of uh, my life and the, the details of the transaction didn't make it work out. Obviously, it's a very minor occurrence, but, you know, people also lose bank accounts because of the way they vote or the protests that they participate in. And then I think the third point that Bitcoiners seem to be concerned about and that is, I believe, missing from the popular dialogue is that broadly speaking, we are in an era of very high government spending and very high implied inflation. We haven't necessarily experienced the inflationary effects of this government spending fully because it spends into an opaque and complicated financial system. But we are convinced that the mathematics, at least in the United States, of the way that the U.S. government spends money and its national debt is accumulating, that this has to end in an inflationary default in the United States and therefore likely throughout the entire world, probably most countries, most developed countries. Now, we don't talk about developing countries because developing countries, you you know, you basically get your savings wiped out every 10 years anyway. So that's just the status quo there. As Bitcoiners, I think that we believe that there is a real risk of sort of irresponsible and reckless government fiscal policy resulting in a financial catastrophe that completely wrecks us and our families. And so we view Bitcoin a sovereign asset unattached to any political party or ideology or central point of failure as a way to opt out of a system where we have to care about what politicians are doing. And and since democratic institutions have sort of failed to express our preferences in our ruling class, we don't really want to share the consequences of bad politics because we feel like we can't affect the outcomes. And so, you know, Bitcoin is a reasonable hedge for some people or opt out for others who are more disgusted with their political options. Yeah, well put. I don't really have much more to add to it other than it's a fascinating point in time for a Bitcoin podcast to be capturing this from a Bitcoin perspective. Because if our bet is right, Bitcoin will kind of just gobble a lot of this up. But we'll see. We'll see. Maybe it goes to zero. I don't think I can't actually even fathom a scenario where that happens. Even if the price went to zero, idiots like me would just buy a whole bunch. <laughs> it would immediately go back up. Right. So there's, a, there's always know, a market. Uh, yeah. As long as you're around. <laughs> and as long as... And as long as in lo- as long as you can route TCP/IP packets, uh, there's going to be a Bitcoin network. Just to add one more non-Bitcoin subject, there's a great article from Wolf Richter of Wolf Street, who is not a friend of the show. You know, quite quite anti-Bitcoin. <laughs> So he has a great test case of a modern office tower that was sold uh, recently in San Francisco. 
And this is one of those huge, expensive office buildings built at the peak of the San Francisco real estate bubble. And it's been on the market for, I think, two years or three years now. Yeah, it was initially listed in 2020 for a sale price of $250 million. And, and this is a very complicated transaction. So when we say $250 million sale price, you know, there's a lot of like releasing and stuff involved. But that just gives you a sense. Well, it recently sold for a price between 60 and $67 million. That's actually a 75% write down from the original listing price. And I just want to mention this because this is probably kind of an extreme piece of property in that it was built in the most expensive place in the U.S. and therefore it's probably had the most, the highest high and maybe the, the highest drop to find a sales price. Other office buildings probably won't have such an extreme drop. But if commercial real estate gets written down anywhere close to 75%, well, the entire U.S. banking system, which holds lots of commercial mortgage-backed securities and direct commercial real estate loans, is completely insolvent. So I just throw this out there as another example of legacy financial contagion and how the current banking crisis globally is completely uncontained because, at least in the United States, regional banks are heavily exposed to the commercial real estate sector. And based on what's just happened with this sale, that sector is going to be written down by a huge margin. And so more bank turmoil seems pretty inevitable when I consider these facts. Yeah, and this is just sort of going to be a trend if work from home remains an option and these high-end commercial real estate offices are just going to become less and less in demand. It says you combine that headwind with a recession headwind and it doesn't seem particularly great for commercial real estate, although it could be particularly great if you're looking to buy in a year or two. This episode of the Bitcoin Dad Pods brought to you by my podcast network over at JupiterBroadcasting.com, where we got a suite of shows. I mean, what would you call like three or four or five good shows? I don't know. A suite? A nah. suite? A royal, uh, royal Flush, maybe? Straight? A fleet of shows? A full deck of, of podcasts to talk about Linux, open source, software development, self-hosting, and podcasting. JupiterBroadcasting.com. Highly recommend all of Chris's podcasts. I listen every week. Oh. I'm a better person for it. <laughs> now, before we jump into Bitcoin education, I just want to give a shout out to the Adopting Bitcoin Conference in El Salvador this November. Yes, November 7th through the 9th. It'll be happening in the capital of El Salvador, and Dad and I will be there. And uh, it's looking like it's going to be a banger of an event. I think they're generating some good buzz. I'm excited. Right. So we're sharing this here. And I think that one great aspect of this conference, and I understand you have to travel to get there. It's a, it's a big deal. You know, this is this is, might be difficult to attend, but you can also watch the YouTube channel both live and afterwards. I think live, maybe. I'm, I'm not sure about that, actually. And they have simultaneous translation to Spanish, which is really key because the Spanish speaking world is actually probably the big adopter of Bitcoin right now with high inflation in Argentina and Brazil. And there is both an econ track. So if you want to cover econ topics and, you know, that sort of analysis of Bitcoin and where it fits in the financial world, there's also a dev track that is highly technical, but also approachable. And so Chris and I are going to be assisting the conference on that dev track. I think we're going to be presenting uh, some some speakers and sort of uh, maybe acting as MCs there, maybe. DJ, DJ, DJ dad. <laughs> right. <laughs> 
I'm just very excited about it. And last year when I went solo, man, I messed up because I recorded some interviews, but like I'd never recorded on site before and the sound was bad and I ended up just not not releasing them. And I feel really bad about that because they were really interesting conversations, but I just goofed up the technicals. And so now I'm sorry about that to everyone who's recorded and didn't release, but you know, hopefully with Chris, the podcast extraordinaire this year, we're going to have some great interviews, great discussions, and there'll be a really cool event to share with everybody. Oh, the pressure is on. Totally looking forward to it. And we'll share the best bits on the show for sure. That's going to be a thing. Now, in this week's Bitcoin Optech, let's dive into the real nerdy stuff about Bitcoin. Let's go more technical than anyone ever wanted to go and discuss Thomas Hartman's post about proof of work swap protocol. So proof of work is the way that the Bitcoin network creates transaction history security because you have to achieve a minimum hash rate, a minimum sort of work to add blocks to the network. And then how do we tell if this one history of Bitcoin is the right one or if this other history is the right one? Well, it's the chain, the history with the most proof of work embedded into it. Okay. No, I think I'm following you. So it's sort of kind of using basic function of the blockchain, right? That timing mechanism as sort of a timing mechanism for contracts. Is that what we're that what we're getting to? Like that's what we're getting to. Okay. So and is it using the timing of the blockchain to like verify the integrity somehow? Let's start with the problem. So the problem is that if you're a Bitcoin miner, you need to buy equipment and invest in it, but you don't know how much income your mining equipment is going to generate because if the hash rate increases, then your equipment, which kind of can hash at a certain rate, is going to be a lower proportion of the total Bitcoin network hash rate, and you're going to earn less as a result. But then the best situation is you're a Bitcoin miner, you've got plenty of funds, so you don't have to sell Bitcoin immediately, and you come online, the hash rate suddenly decreases, but you can still operate. And so your mining operation becomes a larger part of the Bitcoin hash rate, total hash rate. Uh, You earn more Bitcoin rewards and then, you know, by the time you want to sell, it's, you know, ages later and it's also and it's, you know, appreciated again. I mean, hash rate and price, I don't think are strongly correlated, but there are some general trends often. Yeah. OK. All right. So it's for miners. Exactly. So the concept of proof of work swap is that because there is a relationship between time and block production you know, in Bitcoin, the script can unlock something based on either the time, the time in the block or the height of the block. So what you do is you have this script that puts in an estimated time to unlock some Bitcoin, but then it also has the option to unlock Bitcoin at a certain block height that equals the the estimated number of blocks that would have created the time in the script. So let's say you've got 50 blocks or 500 minutes because blocks come in at 10 minutes a block. Well, if you get to 500 minutes, but the block height is only 40 uh, plus 40, that means that the hash rate has actually fallen. And then therefore the time argument unlocks the script and you get a payout. Whereas if the opposite is true, you get to the 50 block height before 500 minutes goes by. That means that the 
hash rate has increased and blocks are coming in faster. So this is obviously a relatively simple construction, but it gives you the idea that you can create some kind of financial derivative or insurance contract that allows you to hedge situations where hash rate increases or decreases. And while this is a bit esoteric and doesn't necessarily affect users of Bitcoin, for miners, this can add additional insurance and financial options to create a more sustainable operation, I believe. Yeah, okay, fascinating. You would know if it arrived early or late based on the block production and the timing. You could have funds that could be locked up that somebody gets paid out depending on a particular scenario. Right. I'm not sure if this is enabled by Taproot, but this is sort of enabled by having a global trustless money state machine that you can also write programs into. So you don't need someone to custody funds and you know you don't have to trust a third party to execute the contract. So this is something that blockchains and Bitcoin enable that's new as opposed to previous financial models. It was hard to kind of wrap my head around, but now that I now that you explain it, I get it. And of course we'll have a link in the notes too that uh, you could read through that might also help uh, if it didn't quite click for you when you're listening. <laughs> yeah, or save it for next week. I guess I'd like to know how deep people want us to go, because it's another really kind of cool technical topic that nobody's talking about. But again, we're not experts on it yet. We'll learn over time as it, these things take time anyways. So let's do some feedback. Then remember, you can get in touch with the show, Bitcoin Dad Pod at ProtonMail.com. If you do the Twitter thing, here they have a new boss, Bitcoin Dad Pod on Twitter. And of course, we've got that Matrix channel, which is just a fantastic little community. Just a great bunch of folks in there. Details at JupiterBroadcasting.com slash Matrix. We like Element. Uh, Fluffy Chat on mobile is pretty easy to use as well. Kind of more like a Telegram UI. And then join the Matrix. Get in there. You'll find the Bitcoin. We have a Bitcoin discussion and a Bitcoin question and alts questions as well, as well, all in there. Yeah, the alts tag is to not scare off the altcoiners. So try to not be... We won't bite. ...too maximalist when you click join. You know, it's, it's okay to click on it. So you're not giving anything up. You'll win them over time. Trust us. Honey, not mustard to attract flies. <laughs> Anonymous boosts in LeetSats1337. You're gonna spoil us with this short release cadence, Dad. I think that raising awareness about estate planning for Bitcoin wallets is important. I love the message that you should get a plan together now and not wait, even if it's a plan you hate, because you can always improve it later, whereas waiting can leave your heirs empty-handed. Good advice. Thanks for the boost, Anonymous. Again, it's a hard thing to think about, but I definitely needed to take care of that myself. It's a good reminder. Well, you should listen to the episode because there's even a link to a free, like, will-creating document that a lawyer recommends. I mean, that's pretty cool. Boom. There's some value right there. Scott Boosin with one, two, three, four sets. Dad plus Chris episodes. Two bros hanging out to discuss high signal ways to use your Bitcoin that makes me want to build a node. Just dad episodes. Unending stream of high signal economics that expands my brain 2x. Well, thanks, Scott. <laughs> thanks a lot, Scott. Are we bros? Are we broy? I I thought we were daddish. Daddish? Yeah, I mean, definitely more of a dad vibe. Uh, I think if you and I were in our 20s, there would be a strong bro vibe potentially, you know, maybe early 30s. But like we'd both be wearing basketball shorts or something. Yeah, yeah. And maybe tank tops. And <laughs> the bro vibes begin to fade when you get into your 40s and you're a dad and then you get, you know, dad vibes. I mean, I think that's a trap for YouTube podcasters, because if you're a young guy and you hit the gym, you want to show off those guns. And we're all very impressed and maybe a little jealous. At the same time, I'm in, I'm in my 30s, you know, like I, I, I kind of don't need the judgment. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> 
<laughs> I've just given up. Let's see. That's what's beautiful about the 40s. Mirror Mortals podcast boosts in a row of ducks, 2,222 sats. Fantastic chat, Dad. I learned a lot from this. For those of us who haven't listened to all the past episodes, and this is in response to the episode with Anthony Park. Aside, I gave it a terrible title. I called it TNG with Anthony Park because I thought the next generation, but I really just should have called it Bitcoin estate planning. So I'm, I'm sorry for to Anthony and everyone who found the title confusing. Mirror Mortals continues, would you mind sharing? or point us towards the story learnings of your multi-sig Electrum loss might also be helpful for avoiding catastrophic mistakes. Ouch. Okay. (laughs) So the TLDR is that multi-signature is actually a smart contract. And right now there are some very good ways to create multi-signature Bitcoin wallets. There's the 10x wallet guide. There's the inbuilt multi-sig that Spectre wallet enables. There's a lot of good stuff. But before those tools existed, Electrum wallet would allow you to just build a multi-sig by pasting in pub keys. But it was a little finicky and you could do it very easily. But the thing is, if your pub keys got mixed up, it was very hard to recreate the wallet. So as long as you had the wallet file and the private keys to sign, it was very easy to create the wallet. But what happened to me was I accidentally deleted the wallet file, which is, you know, big no-no. But, you know, I thought, hey, I've got the private keys. I can rebuild this. But it turned out that I somehow malformed my public keys when I was putting them in. Something I did to create the multi-sig out of the public keys just was a little weird and specialized. So I've looked into it. I've consulted with people it's pretty clear that it's not coming back. And that's the risk of being at the forefront of technology. It's at the risk of being reckless. Obviously, I should have done it with testnet Bitcoin first. I should have done it with testnet Bitcoin, deleted the wallet, recreated the wallet, sent funds in, sent funds out, done everything. But I didn't do that. And I learned the expensive way. You know, we don't hear really people talk about it, but this probably happens on the daily with people's digital photo collections. I bet people are losing their precious digital photos of their babies and their family members that are gone all the time. You know, it's just something that is a Society, we haven't really wrapped our head around fully, but it's something as Bitcoiners, we're at the forefront of trying to figure out. Oh, can I throw my digital photo backup strategy towards you? See what you think? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I've got Nextcloud sorted out. My wife and I, our phones, instant upload to our Nextcloud instance. That Nextcloud instance, all the data from the photos is split out onto a ZFS data set that's just photos. This photos data is then ZFS replicated to a Pine64 board, a little box that has another, like a, a ZFS mirror, 14 terabyte mirror. And it also replicates to Backblaze, the Backblaze encrypted uh, cloud. There you go. I like this. Now, if you delete on your phone, does it delete it from Nextcloud and then thus delete it from what goes to the drive on the Pine? No, it's a, it's a one okay. way. So sync. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's not efficient. You know, it's, there's always going to be photos you deleted. Yeah. There's going to be diffs you'll yeah. have to hold because you deleted photos. So it's not like space efficient, but my view is space is cheap. I, you know, what would be kind of fun is to throw something like photo prism on top of the pine. And then you could every now and then go through and prune because photo prism has some nice search features and stuff. Yeah. That seems like a solid backup. I do have photo prism running on this. So I do prune like what's available, but I don't prune them out of the backups because, you know, that's the backups. I don't touch them. I wouldn't want to, you know, fat finger a ZFS destroy or anything. <laughs> yeah, let's let it be. It's better to have it than to lose it all. Yeah, I like that. That's a good little setup. Now you just need to productize it and, uh, you know, 
become a millionaire. Probably solve, solving problems. Faraday Fedora comes in with some enterprise sats, 1701. I just listened to episode 71 of Linux Downtime. I think you guys need to have a on-air chat with Joe about why you hate crypto too. He also sent in just 500 sats in reaction to the Pill episode saying it was a great breakdown of the interview. So I'm going to disagree with Faraday Fedora because frankly, I don't think we need to talk about crypto with or Bitcoin with Joe. I think that that was a great episode. I love Molly White. I think that her critiques of the crypto space hold a lot of water. And I think what's a little bit different about, say, me and Molly is that Molly looks at all the scamming around crypto and says, this is awful. We need to do something about this scamming. And the scamming potentially delegitimizes all of the useful things that Bitcoin does. And I disagree entirely because I say, listen, Molly, you can see all of the crypto scamming because it's happening live on Twitter and people are complaining about it. But crypto is a tiny market cap. Bitcoin is a tiny market cap. And the structural inequalities of legacy finance are so huge and massive that you can't even perceive the unfairness. You can't even perceive the structural disadvantage that you, everyone you know, everyone who isn't a multimillionaire billionaire experiences on a daily basis. And that's, by the way, not a commentary on Molly. That's just a fact of measuring a system within the system. Exactly. I mean, just because of her background, what the things she cares about, her perspective, she sees the immediate issues of crypto scamming and she writes about that. And we're happy to read that because we think it's good to look at that critique and we agree that, you know, scammers going to scam bad scammers. I think where we take a step back is we think that there's something really special and important about Bitcoin that's also very apropos to our current sort of political, economic, sort of financial precipice that we're standing on. And I don't think that Molly has a strong opinion on that. At the same time, I think the worst part of that episode was Joe, because Joe doesn't have a interesting critique of Bitcoin or even crypto. It's just this kind of, nah, it's all a scam. It's all bollocks. It's very lazy. It's very negative. He's clearly not engaging with it. And it's just uninteresting. You know, he's not interested in it. So I don't think he's interested in having a conversation. In fact, I think that he's more interested in finding people like Molly who can kind of reaffirm his view that it's a scam and he can kind of enjoy being right about that. You know, but the thing is, it wasn't just Molly on that podcast. There was, I think, two other people and Joe, and they all held Bitcoin. All of them had Bitcoin, but they were still saying it was a scam. So I'm just like, well, then why didn't you sell the Bitcoin? Why didn't you totally get rid of it? The answer is because Bitcoin and podcasting 2.0 enables payments, especially to podcasters that did not exist before. And there's no acknowledgement that that's useful and that the legacy payment system can't do that. You know, they're kind of moving the goalposts, choosing things to attack and then not acknowledging that they're you know, kind of hypocrites because they're using crypto in their own life. So I don't think a conversation is particularly useful because I don't think that Joe's interested in engaging in good faith with the subject. And I would add, I think both dad and I agree that if Molly creates a few anti-Bitcoiners in the process of saving potentially tens of thousands or more from scams by all the Web3 jerks out there, I think she's doing more good than she is harm. And given time, I think Molly will become a Bitcoiner. And I think, you know, especially as CBDCs come around and everybody becomes a Bitcoiner, all of a sudden Bitcoin won't look so bad because the CBDC will be the ultimate ship coin. And it's going to make Bitcoin look like a genuine innovation. And I think that adoption is driven 
by legacy options getting worse and worse and treating people worse and worse. And then the friction and complication and new thinking that Bitcoin requires is less of a lift. It is understandable that if the existing system is serving you pretty well, why would you be critical of that? It's working pretty good. I mean, I basically already have digital money with my debit card. I don't really need cryptocurrency. I can transfer funds between my accounts pretty quickly. Uh, Yeah, I'm good. I don't really need another system. And, you know, all these things look like scams to me. And this just looks like yet another scam. And if you're coming at from all crypto is the same and you kind of reduce it down to that single variable, it's actually a pretty reasonable assumption to think that the Bitcoiners are just on about a different crazy idea, but they're all just crazy ideas, especially if you don't come at it with an economics background, right? Like part of my, my life cycle with Bitcoin was I was adopted to it. I was drawn to it because of the technology, but that waned over time, but it was the economics. And in contrast to the current system that really made me passionate about Bitcoin, it was the understanding of what hard sound money is and the economic deficiencies, especially when it comes to the working class of the current system. But if you haven't spent a lot of time considering that and thinking about how it affects you and your family, and maybe your kids down the road, if you haven't really spent a lot of time thinking about how it affects the unbanked, or if you haven't ran into a particular issue with the banking system that's been quite concerning, you haven't really been shaken, you don't really need to see an alternative. And I think Molly's a pretty smart individual, so when those things, those situations do change for her, as it seems to be changing for all of us over time, uh, I, I think she could come around. I look forward to talking with Molly on the record one day. I, th- I think it'll be really interesting. And Faraday Fedora, thanks so much for prompting all of that discussion. I hope it doesn't sound like we're punching down on another podcaster. You know, it's just, this is our view. That's their view. I think that, you know, we have to be able to express ourselves pretty openly. Bitcoin focus boosts in 9,000 sats for the reaction to Hugh Hill episode. I can see where this is going. Bitcoin dad reacts prank. Hashtag gone wrong. Hashtag gone sexual. Hashtag not clickbait. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Get to the top of those charts. Right. You know, just quick pivot to YouTube, some dramatic thumbnails. Yeah, we're moving the podcast to TikTok. So everyone go, <laughs> yeah, go right, go and download right, of course, the app. It needs to be TikTok. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're big fans. Yeah, that's gonna happen. Uh, Green Sheep comes in with thirteen thousand six hundred and sixty-six sats. Oh my God, Becky, look at that breakdown. Clear and insightful. Thank you, Dad. <laughs> Thanks so much. I think that was our big boost of the week. What is the OMG Becky reference? You know, like, oh my God, Becky, look at that butt. You know, I think it's like the sir, the old uh, I like big butt song. Oh, I see. You, you lack in the 80s music references is what I know. That's what I've noticed. But I'm bad with names, so I'd take that over names. Well, now I've, I, I'm hearing the song in my head. Now, there was some financial shenanigans with this last boost. Was there? So, Fear Gaz Balls boosts in 1,200 sats, but you've made a note. 900 plus 300 from Chris. So, what happened there? Yeah, I just wanted to get over the line, you know, because we have the 1,000 sat cutoff. And uh, I didn't want to break the rules, so I threw in 300 sats to get uh, Fear's uh, boost. Because I just love this idea. He says, somewhere in the sequence of ducks, we need to have a gizmo ducks. And I love gizmo duck. I agree. We, sh- we need to have a gizmo row of ducks. And I'm thinking it's like, so if you look at Gizmo, he kind of looks like a figure eight. So maybe it's like 82,222 ducks. I'm sorry, who is Gizmo? Oh, okay. Well, go look up Gizmo Duck on Google Images right now or on your Bing Images or your Bing Images, your huff, of course. Huff, go or whatever you use. <laughs> what? Your your Huff Huff Po. 
Go on your your duck duck images. Oh, that's kind of great. It's sort of appropriate. Go to duck duck go images and look up Gizmo Duck. And you'll see what I'm saying. He kind of looks like a figure eight a little bit. I remember this is from DuckTales, right? You got it. So what about 82,222 sets? It's a big boost, but you know, we're trying to get revenue up for the show. That makes sense. Okay. So if you boost in 82,222 sats, it's a gizmo, a gizmo duck, duck boost. And we, pr- we should probably Big. play the gizmo noise. Does he have a okay. theme song or something? I, I don't know. We, we could probably find one. You know, I mean, I, I've got all the, all the DuckTales episodes, so I could probably find one. If somebody, if somebody does that boost, I'll spend the time to go find a gizmo duck. Thank you to everybody who boosted into the pod this week. We really do appreciate it. There's a couple of easy ways to get started these days. I really think you might as well try out the podcasting 2.0 revolution. There's some great apps. It reminds me of the early days of Linux. Podverse is a GPL cross-platform app it's available on the web too, which is nice if you drive and then you want to finish at your desk or vice versa. And then there's Fountain FM. They have a unique model where they stream you sats as you listen. It's a bit of a trickle stream, but they do that by they have a couple of ad placements that are nicely done in the app that you can listen to and stream sats as well. Those ads are bought with sats and then they stream those back to you as you listen and then you can collect those over time. You also just get a lightning address so you can just send sats into your fountain wallet really easily or keep your dang podcast app and just go get Albi. Get Albi.com, top it off directly with MoonPay or using your lightning network or your on-chain methodologies. Then you go to the podcast index, you look up the Bitcoin dad pod, boom, there it is. You send a boost right from the webpage using the LB extension. Pow, pow, pow. Your message goes on the show. You support the pod. And you can also send in reoccurring boosts or one-off lightning uh, boosts using our get all B addresses. Also in the thank you boosters segment, we get a weekly boost from a listener who runs oak.node or oak.home on their own node. Super cool that they've set that up. Thank you, Bob. And this has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on May 12th, 2023. Sorry for the shorter and perhaps different format. It felt like more of a long editorial. Hope that's okay. <laughs> I love that you're apologizing for the pod. <laughs> it's different, that's you great. know, if you get something yeah, you're not yeah. expecting, maybe you'll be ornery or disgruntled. I think you keep it up. You, you don't You don't want to get them comfortable, right? You keep everybody evolving and growing all the time. Keep them on their toes. That sounds a little stressful. I, yeah, it does. Yeah. I'm going to need a nap. Okay. <laughs> and I am here, as always, remotely with... <laughs> Thanks for joining us, everybody. See you next time. <laughs> <laughs>